This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to remind you that Amanda and I have created a Patreon page for the podcast this year. If you become a Patreon member, you can gain early access to episodes without ads, access to bonus episodes, a monthly newsletter with study tips, and more. You can join by visiting www.patreon.com slash certified OCS prep podcast. Also, if you're using MedBridge to study, you can get $175 off your yearly membership by using our affiliate code certified. If you have any questions about MedBridge or Patreon, you can email us at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. So today we're going to transition a little bit um, back to some spine stuff. We're going to go over the neck. Um, So this information is going to come some from the neck CPG and some from the current concepts, some from other articles and sources that we've pulled. Um, What we're going to do today is the introduction. We're going to go over prevalence, risk factors, clinical course, the differential diagnosis, and outcome measures. We formatted these very similarly to how we did the low back. So last season, we kind of put everything together in a couple longer episodes. This season, we felt like it was really important to break these couple areas down because they're such a large portion of the OCS exam. So similar to how we did for lumbar spine, broke it down into the four subcategories. We're going to do the same thing with the neck. So today will be the introduction. I think it just makes it easier for you all to absorb it. And then two, if you need to go back and listen to a certain section or whatnot, that's available to you. Um, So the prevalence of neck pain is going to be um, very variable in the research. Um, Reports uh, estimate that 22 to 70% of the population will have neck pain at some point in their lives, with 10 to 20% of the population experiencing neck pain at any one time. So 22 to 70% is obviously a huge range. I think it's probably a little bit towards the higher end of that, um, you know, just based on clinically what we see. Um, Prevalence of neck pain is going to increase with age. It's going to be most common in women and specifically around that 50 50 years of age or that fifth decade of life. Neck pain has rates of reoccurrence and chronicity with an estimated 30% developing chronic pain. So we'll talk some about that. Um, As we go into the different subcategories, some are more likely to be recurrent and chronic, as some will be more um, acute and episodic. 5% of the adult population with neck pain will be disabled by their pain, which makes this a serious health concern, very similar to how the trends in low back pain are. Neck pain is the second most common diagnosis, only behind back pain, leading workers' compensation costs in the U.S., so I think that's important just to note, you know, clinically, um, when you're seeing these patients you know, making sure we're doing our part to get them back to their level of function. Neck pain does not have one set definition. And when it's classified in research, it's going to include a variety of symptoms, um, which is going to limit the ability to sometimes compare data across the studies. So keep that in mind. You know, today, like I said, we're doing the intro. We're going to go over general um, risk factors, clinical course, stuff like that. But we'll dive into things a little bit more when we go into the subcategories. Um, The risk factors. Risk factors have historically included an age greater than 40, coexisting low back pain, a long history of neck pain, um, cycling or biking as a regular activity, loss of strength in the hands, a worrisome attitude, and a poor quality of life. 
More recent research is going to suggest additional, re- additional risk factors of, of female sex, high job demands, being an ex-smoker, and low social or work support. The strongest and most consistent risk factors for new onset of neck pain are the female sex and a prior history of neck pain. Um, Some research also suggests, too, that Caucasians also have a higher prevalence, but that's not necessarily noted consistently across all of the research. Clinical course. Research on clinical course is difficult to compare because types of interventions are not well controlled, with participants often participating in a range of interventions. So additionally, some of the reported outcomes are not always the same across reported research meaning some studies are going to look at clinical course based on pain intensity or a disability subscale, um, while some are going to look at work status or medication usage. Recovery is going to appear to happen most rapidly within the first 6 to 12 weeks after an injury, um, and recovery rates are going to slow after that initial window of acute episode. Very similar, again, to that how the low back pain traje- trajectories look. Whiplash-associated diagnoses can take up to one year to achieve recovery, depending on the definition of recovery that we use, and approximately 50% of all patients that suffer from a whiplash-associated diagnosis will achieve full recovery within that year, meaning about half of them will become a little more chronic or reoccurrent or have future episodes. I think this is an important time to note, too, that um, more and more the whiplash-associated diagnoses are also sometimes classified as those movement coordination impairment type diagnoses. So we'll look into more of that as we get to that subcategory, but you may see those terms used interchangeably. A lot of times they mean the same thing. More chronic or insidious neck pain is typically going to follow that recurrent or um, episodic course. Those patients are often going to improve, have relief of their symptoms. However, their complete resolution is not necessarily their common course. So a lot of these patients are sometimes what we see in the clinic. They develop with a um, really good home exercise program. They do well, and they're able to manage their symptoms. They come and go, and they're able to more specifically identify their aggravating factors and then use activity modification and some exercise to manage. Patients with cervical myelopathy with or without radiculopathy will likely show periods of symptoms not improving or worsening where they're considered to be stable or will have just a general gradual worsening. So they're going to kind of either follow that just general downhill fall, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, or they're going to kind of have periods where they do okay and then they decline and then they do okay and then they decline. 67% of those patients, so the ones with cervical myelopathy, will report progressive deterioration over time. And those who underwent surgical management are going to show better outcomes than those under conservative care. The reason this really falls into here is we're going to talk about differential diagnosis in a couple minutes, and that's something that really is important to be looking out for, some of the hallmark signs of cervical myelopathy. Cervical radiculopathy has a generally favorable natural course. Um, Those types of symptoms are generally going to resolve over weeks to months, depending how long they've been there and the extent of the involvement. Clinical prognosis. Prognostic Prognostic indicators in patients with neck pain should include pain intensity, their level of self-rated disability, pain-related catastrophizing, which is done through the catastrophizing scale, post-traumatic stress symptoms, and cold hyperalgesia. So these are the set indications for a negative prognosis in patients with neck pain. A reported pain intensity of six or greater, 
an NDI score greater than 30%, an impact of event scale score of 33 or greater, that's um, an assessment of post-traumatic stress symptoms specifically, and then looking at that cold hyperalgesia, so using an ice cube or the cold metal bars, if you have those in your clinic, or the cold pain threshold test, which is a very specific test to determine this. Um, but though there's no specific cutoff noted. So generally, if they have a positive reaction or increase in symptoms, you would note that they have a hypersensitive reaction to the cold. Um, specifically, in non-traumatic cases, prior health, including their regular inability or ability to perform regular exercise, neck pain, and sick leave can also provide some prognostic value. So that's where um, some of your subjective history comes in, you know, asking them what's their prior level like, um, you know, are they on leave? Are they not on leave? Is it something they're already managing and kind of working through, or is it really kind of debilitating them? And just having a good idea of where the patient's at can really help um, guide your prognosis. Differential diagnosis. This is, again, some of the most important parts as um, direct access is improving. We talked a lot about this um, with low back. You'll see it a lot there, but I think it's as important in the neck also. Um, diagnosing neck pain um, by implicating specific structures or tissues is often unreliable with a specific cause or tissue unknown. So again, we're not looking at those pathoanatomic diagnoses just like we are in the low back. We're looking at impairments related to functional limitations. Clinicians should be assessing for impaired function of muscle, connective, and neural tissue to develop uh, physical therapy diagnoses and use that to create your plan of care. Again, providing patient education to de-emphasize those pathoanatomic um, descriptors that they see in imaging reports or have heard from the doctor um, and encourage them to get moving. Sources of nociception include the zygopapophyseal joints, the vertebra, muscles, ligaments, neural structures, and the intervertebral discs. Um, basically, that's a lot of what's happening in the neck for the most part. So to implicate one structure is really not possible. All of those can cause pain at one or more times. More serious but rare sources of neck pain include cervical myelopathy, cervical ligamentous instability, fracture, neoplasm, vascular insufficiencies, cardiac involvement, or systemic disease. So this is where your red flag screening really comes in. Um, we talk about a lot of these in our Fun with Flags episode. Um, and if you need pictures of the special tests, you're not familiar with those to do for those couple of different things, like your cervical ligamentous test, I would strongly encourage you to look through your current concepts books. I know they're detailed in there. MRI is the imaging of choice to diagnose myelopathy and central canal stenosis. Clinical tests used in the diagnosis of cervical myelopathy generally have a low sensitivity. Thus, they should not be used in isolation when you're diagnosing that condition in the clinic. You know, it's okay to say the patient has signs and symptoms of or, you know, signs concerning for, um, but, you know, you do your clinical test, but just know that they aren't necessarily very sensitive. And then another um, screening tool that I think is really important to know that we go over in the episode that we did about um, clinical prediction rules is the Canadian C-spine rules, and that's a set of questions or an algorithm to determine whether or not x-rays are needed in cases of trauma. So x-rays are indicated if any one of these high-risk factors is present. Age 65 or older, a dangerous mechanism of injury, which is defined as a fall from an elevation greater than or equal to three, an axial load to the head, an MVA greater than 60 miles per hour, a rollover MVA or an ejection MVA, an ATV accident or a bicycle collision, 
if they have numbness or tingling in their extremities and they're, they have an inability to actively rotate their neck um, 45 degrees left or right. So those are your indicators for getting an x-ray. If they're sitting up in the ER, they can rotate their head, they're talking, those types of things, imaging isn't necessarily needed. Um, and then the outcome measures is a little more brief than it is in the low back. Um, really, they're utilized for two purposes in this population. It's to identify their baseline status, monitor any changes relative to their pain, function, or disability, and then kind of get a general assessment of their psychosocial functioning or where they're at psychosocially um, regarding their injury or lack of function. The two recommended outcome measures for this population are going to be the NDI and the uh, PSFS, which is the patient-specific functional scale. I think by and large, you're going to see the NDI is the gold standard for this, um, but certainly there are others out there. So that's kind of the general uh, gist of the neck pain introduction. We're going to move into neck pain with mobility deficits next, coordination disorders. There's a headache section and then radiating pain. So those will be the kind of subcategories that we look at. Alexis, do you have anything you wanted to add to the neck pain introduction? No, I don't think so. I think that, that pretty well sums it up. Um, it too, I will say this is another section that if you guys aren't familiar with the CPGs put out by the ortho section, and we're going to be over going over a lot of different levels and recommendations for evidence. We talked about it in the low back introduction, but what those different levels of evidence mean and where those letter graded recommendations come from. We're not going to go back over it in this whole episode, but it is in the low back episode or it's published in the beginning of all the CPGs. I would reread that because I think it's helpful to know then when we're making recommendations on the podcast for different um, interventions or examination techniques, you understand what's good evidence and what's not. Anything else, Alexis? No, I think that's it. That's great. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Thanks.